Well, open up your Bibles to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 20 through 25. Matthew 26, verses 20 through 25. And last week we just looked briefly at really the big picture of the Passover as it relates to Christ. This morning, a scene of conversation of Jesus with his disciples during this meal, this last Passover meal. And then we'll look at the meal itself and its implications Uh, that Christ himself identifies as he shares it with his disciples next week. And we might even take a couple weeks on that. It's such a big topic. It's so important. But this morning we're going to look at verses 20 through 25 and zero in and look in, as it were, in this conversation that Jesus is having now with his disciples during this meal, the last supper, his last Passover meal on earth. And as... Of course, we see this through all of Scripture, but in a unique way, and not only just by our theology and the big picture of Scripture, but by those little hints and clues and those little direct statements that Matthew makes throughout these last days, we're continually reminded of the sovereign hand of God, that that every detail of the events that are unfolding before us in these last moments of Christ's life are in fact directed by the Father. They are being yielded to by the Son. And at least one thing that my intention was last week was to remind us of this big picture of God bearing witness and testimony to His Son. The big picture that began really in the garden, but especially since the forming of the nation where God made a promise And God is, throughout all of Scripture, fulfilling this promise. And ultimately, this promise is that He would send a Redeemer. And everything that God has done in the history of the world and the nations, but particularly through His covenant people, is designed to bear witness to this great truth that God has determined, indeed before the foundation of the world, but He has determined and He has promised and He has borne witness to His Son to the Redeemer, to the Messiah. So he's sovereign over everything and every event that has happened to his people. And that is certainly so here in these last days of Christ's life. And that's very important to hold on to, not only to, for us, but for these disciples particularly who are living it out because events are going to unfold that they were totally unprepared for. Events are unfolding that they were not expecting. And to know that these things were not outside of God's control. He wasn't just dealing with situations as they come. But he was in fact fulfilling his sovereign purpose. is absolutely crucial for them to understand and for us to understand as well. And so the big idea, the main purpose here this morning is to see... In God's revelation in this last conversation, that which should increase our faith that God is sovereign over suffering. He's sovereign over the evil deeds of men. And yet, the wicked men fulfill his purpose. All men are accountable for their actions. Let's read these verses together and then we'll look at that a bit more closely. Begin in verse 20 of Matthew 26 and we'll read to verse 25. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, that one of you will betray me. Now being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Look back up again at verse 20. And let's note the first point is this, that God is sovereign over suffering in the wicked deeds of men. God is sovereign over suffering and the wicked deeds of men. And what I would want to emphasize first in saying that is that Christ 
in willingly submitting to this sovereign plan of the Father, is submitting also in every detail of his life to the bringing on to himself deep pain and suffering and sorrow that he might be a perfect redeemer for us. The idea is then that Jesus is doing this all voluntarily. And so I want to consider just even briefly the kind of pain that Jesus was submitting himself to. And so consider this first, that the nearer the relationship that we have with someone, the greater the pain of betrayal. And I think that's one thing that Matthew is emphasizing here. That the nearer the relationship, the greater the pain of betrayal. The reality of all human relationships is this. It's basic. The closer that someone is to us, the more they can hurt us. The more pain we can feel from them. The greater potential they have to do damage to us inwardly. No one can hurt you and wound you emotionally more deeply than one who is nearest to you. Whom you trust. Who is the closest to you. The pain and rejection of rejection or betrayal at that level is the deepest human pain and heartache that we can suffer. And this is precisely what Christ gave himself over to. This is precisely the kind of pain that Jesus gave himself to endure. Look at verse 20. It says, Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. This is a really intimate scene. These are the men with whom he shared the closest camaraderie, the closest friendship, whom he had travailed with and served with in ministry now for these three years. These are his companions. These are his close friends. And in fact, outside of the events that are soon going to take place, if this scene stood by itself on its own, say if verse 20 stood there on its own, we would think, what a delightful scene. This is the kind of thing you'd want to put on a painting in your house. It's a, what a peaceful, what a, what a wonderful scene of friendships and brothers and close companions and ministry partners sharing in this intimate meal together, this Passover meal. It says in verse 21, or verse 20 there at the beginning, that it was evening. And we already noted this last time, that it was now evening when the Passover meal was celebrated. This was, in fact, the Passover meal. There's some that try to question that. But this is, in fact, the Passover meal. The lamb has been sacrificed, and now they are gathered together to share, to remember this great act of God, his deliverance of the nation of Israel. And it says that they were reclining here at the table. And again, I just want to give you an idea of the scene and the language that Matthew uses here, the tense of his verbs and so on and so forth, is designed to bring us into the scene. It's it's designed to help us walk through the doors, as it were, of Scripture and to enter into the room and to watch these events taking place. To stand at the doorway and see Christ with his disciples sharing this meal in the upper room. And, of course, Christ is the focal point of the scene, not the disciples. And as we would enter into this room, as we would travel into this room with them, we would see them around a a table, a very low table. They could have been reclining on pillows. They could have used a Roman form and been sitting on couches that were shaped in a U-shape with Christ at the center. But whatever the exact arrangement was is not the important point. Both of them would have achieved the, the picture here of intimacy that Matthew is painting for us. They were in close proximity. They were leaning on one another, as it were. They were touching each other. It's, it's, again, it's a very intimate scene of friendship. A teacher with his disciples. Here, the Son of God with those that he brought near to him. And these are indeed his friends. If you remember, in the same evening, Jesus tells them that in John 15. You are my friends. My friends, my close companions. And he says, let's notice here, that it is the twelve disciples that are with him. Not ten, not eight, not five, not eleven. But twelve disciples are with him. That means Judas is here, of course, with him. 
He's obviously, Judas returned back from making his deal with the Jewish leaders that we read about in verse 14. Judas, one of the twelve, had gone to them and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him? Now, the other eleven disciples, of course, are ignorant of this event. Judas is in full awareness of what he has done. And, of course, Christ is in full awareness of what Judas has done. But here he is among the twelve, acting like the rest of them. Acting probably no different than he'd acted any other time that he was with them, even while he was stealing from them. One old commentator said this, Judas was now returned again, and he took his place among the disciples, and this is the phrase I liked, as if he was innocent and as friendly as any of them. Nothing in his demeanor, nothing in his attitude, nothing in his speech, nothing about the way he carried himself to give any indication of what was truly in his heart and what he was in fact doing at that very moment. Now Matthew doesn't tell where in the Passover meal they are. It's likely very early since Judas of course is still with them. They've not yet reached that last cup of blessing which will come in verse 27 and following near the end of the meal. But this idea of friendship, this idea of companionship that we see here is again, and this has been mentioned, but is, is meant to conjure up that prophetic picture, that, that picture of David in Psalm 41.9 when he says this, My f- close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And this picture is conjuring that up. And David at that time was speaking actually of what he experienced and prophetically of what was going to happen here in the life of Christ. And so now here he is, Jesus, in this meal with his disciples. And he gives them a shocking announcement, a very sober announcement. Look at verse 21 again, the second part. He says, Truly I say to you, That one of you will betray me. Now this statement would have come to them like a thunderbolt out of a clear blue sky. Totally unexpected. Nothing was further from their mind than that one of them was a betrayer. Nothing. And if you'll remember, this, this is happening after they are already somewhat recovering from being stunned by Jesus In John 13, going around where he washed their feet, taking the role of a slave, demonstrating in some small sense what he was going to do as he was headed to the cross to give up his life for them. And so here they are still after that, and Jesus drops this thunderbolt, this lightning bolt right in their laps. One of you will betray me. And, of course, this is, again, another reminder that Jesus is fully aware of what's going on. He is, he is absolutely aware of the events that are unfolding, why they're unfolding, and what is going to unfold. This is the complete submission of Christ, the complete submission of Christ to what God had ordained for him. He was not taken by surprise in any way. In every way, he was fully aware of what he was doing And what was going to be done to him. And what was being done to him. And he says it here you'll notice with. And you should hear this in his voice when you read this. A seriousness and a somberness. As well as with a sense of authority. When he says truly I say to you. Truly I say to you. Now, Matthew, we're familiar with this phrase. Matthew will use it 27 times in his gospel, this precise phrase. But what is interesting here is this is, only, this is one of the last two times that he's going to use this precise phrase in his gospel. And what's interesting about that is that it's here to speak of the betrayer, Judas. And he'll use it one other time to speak of the denial of Peter. The denial of Peter. The two things that he's very aware of and that he's emphasizing to them is the failure from among their own numbers. In a sense, even a rebellion of one and the denial of the other. Two of his closest companions will deal to him a blow of rejection or denial. And there really is no stronger denial or pain that he identifies here. He says, one of you will betray me. Betray me. 
Now, interesting, this term can be used for positive or negative in, uh, circumstances. It means, simply means to be given over. It can be given over to something good. It ha- it's translated sometimes as entrusted in a good sense, but most oftenly it is used in a negative sense, in a negative sense. And here it is the idea that one of you is going to betray this relationship. You're going to take this relationship that is one of built on trust and closeness, this, this advantage that you have into my life, and you're going to use it to deliver me to evil circumstances, to adverse circumstances. You are, in fact, as it's translated, going to betray me over to suffering and ultimately death. Ultimately death. Now this is the first time, again, that Jesus has revealed this specific knowledge so personally to the disciples. He had mentioned, as we've looked at before, that he would be handed over to the authorities. He'd mentioned that he would be handed over to be killed and to rise on the third day. But never has he said anything like he says here. Nothing comes close to what he's revealing to them here. He makes it personal. He says, not that I will be betrayed, not simply that I will be handed over, although that term could be translated that way, but here it is, I will be betrayed by one of you. One of you. That's really the impact here. He's making it personal. And again, there's really no way to capture the shock and the horror that these disciples would have felt. He, he says simply in verse 22, look at the beginning there, that in, upon hearing this, they were deeply grieved. Deeply grieved. That's a strong term, the one deeply there. He used it one other time, and actually, interestingly, that precise phrase, almost exactly, over in chapter 17, verse 23, when he had told them that he was going to be betrayed and he was going to be put to death, they were deeply grieved. And here at the news that he would be betrayed. And each one of the disciples here felt the force of that word, you. They felt the force, that personal sense of the language that he's using here. And and look at how he, he brings this and he emphasizes that yet again by saying, it's not only going to be one of you, my close companions, but he emphasizes the me here, the me It's me, your Lord, me, the one who has walked with you, me, the one who has chosen you, me, the one who has brought you near. He says in verse 21, you will betray me. He says in verse 23, will betray me. And that last verse there, verse 23, places me first to emphasize it, to emphasize it. Me, he will betray. And again, it's interesting here, too, that none of the disciples pointed to one another. They actually looked at themselves they were concerned first for themselves, showing, of course, again, that they felt the personal nature of it. But they also wanted in this question, they're asking a question here, it's a question mark, but it's written in a way, Matthew does, that expects a negative answer. He expects a negative reply. In other words, it's almost in a sense like they're saying, I want you to confirm that it's not me, that it's not me. Certainly, I wouldn't do that. They wanted to be cleared of the charge. But it's also very reasonable and likely that they, they also were a little concerned about their own hearts. A, a concern somewhat like, it's not me, Lord, but also with a sense of, could it be me? Could it be me? I hope that it's not me. There's a certain amount of self-distrust that they had, maybe of the deceitfulness of their own hearts. And, and maybe from that, they wish Christ to affirm them or confirm them in their confidence that it certainly was not them. And so he answers their question interesting in a somewhat interesting way. He says, He who has dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. He who has dipped his hand in the bowl with me. Now, what's interesting about that is all of them have dipped their hand in the bowl with him. That, that, that in and of itself was not a slam dunk answer. They all had done that. That really, in one sense, is only emphasizing what he had just said. It's one of you, one of the twelve, one of my disciples and my companions. It doesn't completely answer the question. At least not here in Matthew's gospel. John tells us in John chapter 13, verse 26, that there were a few other details going on during this time. And in fact, 
Peter had gone to John, he was closest to him. You remember the scene. John was leaning his head on the breast of Jesus. Peter motioned to John and you know, asked him, who is it? John asked him. And in that scene, and this is happening a little later, is that Jesus actually dips the bread and gives it to Judas. Actually gives it to Judas. But again, the fact is that, that he was so... He was so free. He was so natural in his relationships with them. He was so friendly, as that one author said, that nobody suspected it, neither Peter and John, even after Jesus had done that. I mean, the idea that one of their own would betray Jesus was simply inconceivable. It was inconceivable. And because of the shock of it, Jesus Jesus needed to assure his disciples that he was in control. So the first thing just to notice here is that the nearness of these relationships was designed by God to increase the pain of the rejection. But notice secondly here that God is sovereign over it. He, He is ordaining all of these things. He says, Jesus does in verse 24, The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. Just as it is written of him. And this is really, in one sense, uh, to both the disciples and to us, a marvelous encouragement. Really a, really a marvelous encouragement. Why? Why is that an encouragement? And why, would, and why would Jesus say this to his disciples? Well, again, it is to show that, look, all of these things in the midst of your confusion, in the midst of shock, are not outside of God's control. They're not outside of God's control. Just listen to what he says. This is really important. In John 13, 19. He says this. Just listen. He says, From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, again, this is again about the betrayal, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am He. So that when it does occur, you may believe that I am He. Again, things are going to soon spin out of control for these disciples. And they would need assurance that God's purpose has not failed. Christ's purpose has not failed. That everything is happening just as God had ordained, just as it had been written in Scripture. That God who has declared the end from the beginning is the one who is declaring to them, this is part of the plan. This is part of the plan. And in fact, it is confirming the written word of God. It's confirming scripture. It had long been written down and preserved that these events were going to take place. As a matter of fact, this is really coming to a culmination of a cosmic event that was anticipated way back in Genesis 3.15, remember? In the midst of the judgment of God and speaking in Genesis 3.15 on the serpent... What did he say? You remember? You're going to bruise him on the heel and he's going to crush you on the head. In other words, one's going to come through the line of the wicked, through the line of the ones who would be able to call a spiritual father, their spiritual father, the devil, who is going to bruise the one who's going to come to redeem man back that God is going to send from the curse of the fall. And so right there at the beginning of recorded human history, there is set before us, that's played out through all of history, this cosmic spiritual conflict that's going on. The seed of the serpent that seeks to destroy the work of God and the sovereign purposes of God that will destroy the work of the devil. That will refer destroy the work of the evil one. And really, in many ways, this is coming together here in this scene. It's reaching the apex and the climax of this great cosmic struggle. But Jesus is encouraging them and us to say, look, these things have been written down. Did you not read Isaiah 53? That one was going to come to suffer for the nation? It's not Israel suffering there. One was going to come to suffer Did you not read that this one coming was going to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Did you not read that this one whom God was going to send would be viewed by others as being smitten of God and of afflicted, rejected by God himself? 
Did you not read that this one would bear our griefs in himself, carry our sorrows, that he would be esteemed stricken of God, that he would be pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity? He would be scourged, and by his scourging we would be healed, that God would cause the iniquity of us all to fall on him, that he would be like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his shears and not open his mouth? Did you not read your Messiah would be oppressed, and by judgment he would be taken away and be considered by his generation as one cut off from the land of the living? In other words, did you not read these things? God had told you beforehand, and now, in fact, it is happening. It has been written of him. It has been written of him. And, beloved, I would say this, just remind us, as a means of encouragement here, that there are many evidences that confirm the divine nature of Scripture. That, that is, there are wide categories to draw from to explain that confirm the divine nature of scripture and the the divine sovereignty of God that has preserved his word for us. But the greatest testimony to the divine nature of scripture is what would you say? It's Christ himself. It's Christ himself. The very reality of Christ himself is the greatest witness to the divine nature of scripture. He is the one who in every detail was anticipated, and he is the one that when he showed up, fulfilled everything that was foreshadowed, everything that was told. Jesus told the leaders, you'll remember that you search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life, John 5, 39, but it is these that what? It is these that reveal me. It's these that reveal me. He is the living word and he is the greatest and most comprehensive and most complete witness to the divine nature and to the authority of scripture. But in saying this also, he's giving them a warning. He's giving them a warning. And the warning is namely this, that he knows the hearts of all men, that he knows the hearts of all men. And he knows them then and he knows them now. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Timothy. Let me just read this to you. He says this in the midst of a conversation about false teachers. He says this. Nevertheless, the firm foundation stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Look, the church needs to know that the wicked people will arise, the false teachers will arise, the men will come and lead others astray, though bad things and wicked deeds will happen. God knows those who are his. He's not confused and he's not taken by surprise. The head of the church is not fooled. He knows the hearts of all men. He knows the motives of all men. I don't know each heart here. Maybe some of you might think at times that somehow you can hide your sin from God. That somehow you can commit a deed that God won't know about. That somehow he doesn't know every wicked thought that goes through your mind. That somehow he doesn't know every evil intention that goes through your heart when you act. That somehow something is missed. And, and of course this reminds us that nothing is missed. God knows the hearts of all men. He knows them. He sees them. He who created them, he who fashioned them, is the one who knows them and who sees them. Listen to Hebrews 4. There is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him. And really, this is the most powerful statement. With him, with him, with whom we have to do. In other words, it's not just that he sees them, but that what he sees, we will give an account for. We will give an account for. So he knows what is in the heart of all of those who are at the table, all of those who are there with him. And he knew that when Judas would commit his deed. But there's another reason, and I want to mention this for us to notice. Why, why is this here? Why is this here? What is another reason this is here? It's for this reason. It's to encourage us with that same fact that when those things happen that seem to us a shock, that shake our world, that are outside of anything that we've expected, 
particularly as believers where there's defection, where there's persecution, where there's betrayal, that we are to remember that God is in absolute control. Absolute control. And that's really the point here. That's really the point. Listen to how often Jesus will say that. Let me just read to you a couple of passages. In John 16, remember, this is all taking place in the same time period. This is the upper room. He tells his disciple in John 16, These things I have spoken to you, why? So that you may be kept from stumbling. In other words, so that when these things happen, you won't, you won't be thrown into chaos. Like, what in the world is going on? Is God no longer on his throne? So that we would, when these events happen, know that God is accomplishing his purpose. It was the same in the life of Jesus. He says in verse 4 of John 16, But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm telling you so that when they come and I'm not with you, you may know that I am still in control. I'm still sovereignly in control. And that's the point. It's designed God's prophetic word to give comfort, to remind us of his sovereignty. The pain that he may bring into your life, the trials that he may bring to test your faith are all within the sovereign purposes of God to accomplish his purpose in you and to accomplish his purpose through you. Calvin said this on this verse. This is helpful. He said, The person of Judas, our Lord, in the person of Judas, our Lord intended to admonish his followers in all ages not to be discouraged or faint on account of intimate friends proving to be traitors. Because the same thing that was experienced by him who is the head of the whole church must happen to us who are members of it. And so Jesus is preparing them and he's preparing us to say, look, uh, these are things that can happen to you. And in fact, they will happen to you at some level. These are things that you are not immune of, immune from yourselves. Neither was I. Neither was I. This is, this is very important for us to lay hold of. As Jesus was betrayed, so would his followers be. And in the most intimate way. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 10. He says in verse 24, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. In other words, anything that happens in the life of Christ, anything that happens in the life of Christ is a potential and in some ways a promise for those who desire to live godly in this world will suffer persecution, that that's going to happen in the life of his followers. That it happened to the master, it's going to happen to the slave. So be ready for it. And know that this is not some strange thing that is happening to you. It's the life of following Christ. It's what he endured. He said this, I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies will be those who are in his, in his own household. An intimate, again, relationships, the most intimate relationship, will, a conflict will be inserted. Betrayal will take place. And so he says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. In other words, be ready for whatever the cost may be for following Christ. Be ready for it. Mark puts it even more strongly. Listen to this, Mark 12. Mark 12, verse 12, he says this. He says that they are going to betray you. Betray. The members of your own household are going to be your betrayers. And he wants to prepare them for it. Let me note one thing on this, and then we're going to move on to the second point quickly. And that's this. Why did Jesus go through this? What's another reason that Jesus went through this? And this is really the amazing thing. I mean, when you think of, this is, this is, this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. Why, why this? As we could ask throughout all of the suffering of Jesus, why, why not skip some of this? Because we will experience that as those who follow Christ. Because we will experience betrayal. We will experience rejection. We will experience 
a turning by those who are the most intimate and closest companions in life, because you are going to know that, you also need to understand that he who has gone before you has done so that he might particularly and uniquely minister to you in the midst of the trial. There is, a, there is a fellowship with Christ that's only known in suffering for Christ. There is a closeness to Christ that's only known in enduring hardship for Christ. Listen to what Hebrews says. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. He says again, we do not have a high priest in chapter 4 who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So for Christ to do this, it is to do it as our substitute. There is, a, there is an atoning reality to his suffering that we, of course, cannot model. But there is the suffering, the human grief, the human shock and, and experience and pain of betrayal that we will suffer like him. And he's saying, I've done that for you. I've gone before you. I've done it so that I know what it feels like. I've experienced that pain. I know the heartache and the betrayal, what that is like, and I can walk with you because I experienced it without sin, without a failure in my fellowship with the Father, without the least moment of unbelief, without the least moment of failure and weakness. In strength, he endured it, that he might be our strength in the midst of it. And that's part of the idea. He did it for us. He did it for us. That means that none could ever experience any kind of pain in following Christ and ever bow your knees before him and go to him and think that he does not understand. This is a God who's not only transcendent, but one who is imminent, who has come near, even in the person of Christ, to experience the pain that he might be not only our substitute in atonement, but a merciful and a faithful and a sympathetic high priest. And so that's why he endured this. That's why he let one so near become his betrayer. Let's notice lastly this final point here at the end. And that is this, that God holds yet all accountable for their knowledge and response to Christ. So here's the tension. Here's the tension that we feel so often. God is absolutely sovereign. Everything is being done because it has been written. The Father has preordained not only that Christ would suffer, but how he would suffer, when he would suffer, by whom he would suffer. And yet, all who are involved in that are completely responsible for their actions. That's the tension. That's the tension, right? Paul asked that question, how, how if, if it's God, if it's not according to the man who will or runs, if it's God who makes the choice, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, how can he hold one responsible? And the answer is quite simple, because they acted wickedly. Because each person acted who's held accountable in unbelief. But what Jesus brings out here first is one particular aspect of that, and that's this. That increased knowledge brings increased accountability. Increased knowledge brings increased accountability. Despite the sovereign plan behind every detail of Christ's life, even the fulfillment of Scripture and Judas's own betrayal, it in no way lessens the guilt and culpability of Judas in his sin. It in no way lessens it. And the fact is, because Judas had a greater opportunity, the cost and the price and the suffering for rejection will also be greater. Here's the divine principle. You're familiar with it. I'll remind you. Here's the divine principle. The intensity of eternal judgment will be based on the amount of light and of truth and opportunity to believe and receive Christ that is rejected. That's the principle. That's the principle. The intensity of eternal judgment will be based on the amount of light, of truth, of opportunity to believe and receive Christ that is rejected. Thomas Watson said, He who falls deepest into hell is he who falls backwards, who had the opportunity and rejected it. Judas rejected the greatest possible light, and therefore Judas will suffer, I believe, the greatest possible human suffering in all of hell, who will be second only to Satan himself, whom Jesus said hell was created for back in verse 41. 
cursed ones into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? Because none ever had that opportunity and committed such a dastardly deed, such a deed of wickedness as Judas himself. And so Jesus says it would have been better for him if he wouldn't have been born. Yes, God was fulfilling his purpose. Yes, God was in control of every detail of what was going on. Yes, nothing took Christ by surprise. Yes, this was foreordained. Yet, Judas is acting according to his own will, according to his own desires, according to his own plans, his own purpose, his own unbelief, and he is fully accountable to God for that. For that. As is, as is everyone. And so he says, Woe to that man through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for him if that man would never have been born. This is a divine curse. A divine curse. Would have been good for that man if he had never been born. This is the words of Christ. Job said something like that actually in his suffering in Job chapter 3. He talks about he wishes he would have been aborted at birth. Wishes he would have died. He curses those who cared for him on the day he was born. And he's saying that as one who's experiencing great grief. Jeremiah said the same thing in chapter 20. How He wishes he had never been born. It was a cry of misery. It was the experience of human pain and suffering that just is like, oh, I would give anything to not have to experience this. I wish I would have never been born. It's the rash words of one who is in pain. Job Job calls them words of one in despair that belong to the wind. In other words, when you experience great pain, sometimes people, you just say things you don't really mean. You just, and if you're you're ministering to somebody like that, you don't take everything. Uh, You give give an area of grace here because the suffering is great. And that's how it was with Job. But that's not the case here. That's not the case here. The pronouncement is not from the one suffering... It's not from one speaking rashly in a moment or season of despair. But these are the settled and the sober words of the Son of God himself. It's the one who will inflict that judgment. In reality, John 5.22, he says, All judgment has been entrusted to him by the Father. It has been given to him. So in a real sense, Jesus says this is the one who will be the executioner of Judas. Who will be that judge. Now he is the one who receives Judas's wicked deeds. Later he will be the one who holds Judas accountable for those wicked deeds. And so I would just appeal to you, particularly to those in here who don't know Christ. You are doubly accountable to God. Doubly accountable to God. It's absolutely foolish Sometimes to hear those, what about the pygmy in Africa? The most basic response is, don't worry about the pygmy in Africa. Worry about you. You're hearing the message of Christ. You are responsible for what you hear. And so if you have not repented of your sin, if you have not trusted in Christ as your Savior, just the mere fact that this was the only sermon you ever heard in your entire life, you would be held that much more accountable to it. That much more accountable to it. And I know, in fact, that not everyone, of course, in a congregation like ours, has trusted Christ. And so you need to consider that, and you need to take that very seriously. You need to consider the situation that you're in and learn from the life of Judas. I want to note one last thing here, one other part, and that is this. That continual disobedience opens one up to greater influence by Satan. Continual disobedience opens a person up to greater influence by Satan. You, you might ask, how could this take place? How could one come to this point? How could that happen to Judas? Well, we've mentioned a few answers. I noticed when we talked about Judas, I mentioned that he wasn't dealing with his sin. He wasn't pursuing holiness inwardly. And so it eventually just hardened his heart. And that's certainly true. And that's one of the examples and reasons that Scripture gives us. But there's a second reason, too, that Scripture identifies. And that's this. That he is with every unbeliever who fails to do self-examination, who fails to take seriously the reality of sin and judgment and Christ and grace and all of those things. 
that the more you do that, the more, in a sense, you yield your heart to the influence of Satan, of the devil. In Judas's case, because of his uniqueness of position being so near to Christ, he had the special attention of the devil himself. He's not a devil as an omnipresent. God is. But he is present somewhere. And in this case, he was present specifically in the life of Judas. He had opened himself up so much to the influence of Satan, closed, you could put on the other side, himself to the influence of Christ and of the Spirit, that the decisive moment came where he was totally under Satan's control. So again, Judas is fully responsible for his wickedness, and yet here he is acting completely under the control of Satan. Completely under the control of that divine, or not divine, but that spiritual evil being who fell and is, who is God's opponent. A hater, the ultimate hater of God. So in one sense, he is the pawn of his father, the devil, to commit the most profound act of evil that could ever be committed by a human being. There is no greater act of evil that could be committed. And this then is an example of Judas as the instrument or as the tool to do what Satan has wanted to do ever since he failed, and that is to kill God. That's his goal. And now's his opportunity, and he's using Judas to do that. Now, the gospel notes a progression in the life of Judas. He notes a progression. We know that he wasn't dealing with sin. He was stealing he was greedy and, and, and those things. He had a wrong perspective of Christ and the Messiah. And we know that that's a part of it as well. But I want you to notice just briefly a, a certain progression that John records to us for us in, in this very event of the supper. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll read it to you. But he says in John 13, chapter 2, listen. During the supper, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So it's, it's already something that has been suggested. It was an influence in some way that Judas fully followed, an impulse that he gave into. That's Matthew 26, that's 14. That's where he went to the chief priest. That's where he went out and he made his deal. It had been put into the heart of Judas. But listen to what he says in verse 27. After this whole scene and he had received the morsel of bread given to him by Jesus himself, it says this, John does. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Let me tell you, those are some of the most frightening words in all of Scripture. Satan entered into him. And therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. I think there's a sense here even where Jesus is addressing Judas directly. He may even have behind that because of the full control that he knew Judas was under by Satan. Where he's addressing Satan himself. To both of them. It's sort of a, a double intention here. Go do what you're going to do. Now's your time. As Luke would tell us, this is the hour of darkness. It's been given to you. It's been measured, but it has been given to you. Go do what you're going to do quickly. And in this moment, Satan had full possession of the person of Judas Iscariot. Full possession. Absolute, full control and influence over his will and what he was doing. But that was fully because of the responsibility of Judas who had let him do it. He was always doing his father's will. Now it is just in a more complete sense, you could say. And really the only other human being that this is said of is the Antichrist in Revelation 13. That one, that final evil one, the man of lawlessness who's going to be so completely under the control of Satan himself. Now there is a real sense in which Satan and his demonic host wield spiritual influence on all of the unbelieving world. Right? John, 1 John 5, he is the God of this world. That's throughout the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians, it says that the devil or Satan is the one who is blinds the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the glory of Christ. He's the one who does that. In 2 Timothy 2.24, he holds men captive to do his will. 
In Ephesians 2, he's the spirit who is working in the sons of disobedience. He's working in them. He influences false teachers. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. His servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. His minions are the purveyors of false doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.1, it is the doctrine of demons, demonically inspired doctrine that perverts the gospel of Christ, that lessens his glory, that confuses about his work and his resurrection. That is demonic, beloved. False teaching is demonic. It's not an accident. That kind of thing comes from the pit of hell. And Jesus, or John said that already the spirit of Antichrist is in the world to confuse about the person of Christ. And this could go on and on. So Satan wields an influence on all unbelievers at some level and in some sense in the demonic realm. And as we already know, there's a sense in which he can wield influence on believers. On believers, right? Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, and then he denied them. And three times, at that moment, Peter had been unguarded in his courage and in his commitment to Christ, and he was able to come over some influence. Paul tells the church in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that they need to forgive one another. They need to have an attitude of loving, forgiveness, and accepting of one another. Why? Because we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. Because we know that Satan wants to come inside the church and he wants to cause confusion. He wants to cause factions. He wants to cause divisions. And Paul is telling them, look, we already know he wants to do that. We can't let him do that. We need to obey Christ. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. He has no power over you other than what you give him in influencing your flesh and inciting our own selfish desires. Don't do that. Don't give him any place. Obey Christ. Greater is he is in you than he is in the world. Honor him. But the fact is that there is the possibility of that happening. Satan has no more power or influence if you are a believer than what you yield to him through disobedience, through pride, or through a lack of holiness. Those are all instruments that can be used. This, however, again, is unique. This is unique in the life of Judas. This is, this is something that happens only this once. He entered into him. He entered into him. Tragic. Now there is a sense in which something close to this happened in the Jewish leaders because he says, you're, you're of your father the devil. You want to do the desire of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, so you want to put me to death. And that, was, that was a class of people in which were uniquely under the influence and in committing Wicked deeds. And they're going to be a part, of course, here at the end of the crucifixion. But of Judas, this is personal. This is personal. He entered into him. He entered into him. And this really, as I mentioned before, is kind of, a, kind of an apex of, this, apex of this, co- this cosmic battle that's been intended ever since the garden. And here it is. It'll happen again in the end days. But here it is. Here it is. And this reminds us, beloved, then, then this truth. That there is a spiritual battle that goes on in the life of God's people and in the world. There's spiritual conflict. There's spiritual conflict. There are forces at work that are designed to cause us to sin, to keep people from Christ. These things are not simply innocent. They are purposeful. Listen to what he says. You're familiar Ephesians 6. Look, Paul is saying this. He's reminding us. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm. He's talking to the church. To the church. Stand firm against what? The schemes of the devil, the plotting, that mechanical, determined, intentional work of the devil to cause destruction, to cause injury, to cause the glory of Christ and his people to be diminished. He says in verse 12, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So then, as God's people, those who know him, how would we then respond to that? Well, it's not through a ritual. We don't cast out demons. That's not our role. 
Paul gives the answer there. He says, you take on the full armor of God. You be grounded in the reality by faith and your obedience to him and who Christ is. You walk in the truth like a belt around your waist. You cover yourself in the righteousness of Christ by trusting in him. You have the breastplate of righteousness. You shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. But that's not, of course, what was happening here. And so again, the warning is primarily, if you're an unbeliever, then the reality is that you're already doing the will of your Father. You're already doing the will of the Father. If There's only two influences, right? There's only two influences. Either, and here's the test, either you are being influenced by the Spirit of God, which means in your life you can see, not only externally but in your heart, that you have a real, vibrant live trust in Christ for your sin. You know the reality of being poor in spirit. You have a childlike faith. You have a desire for the Word of God that you might be changed into the likeness of Christ and to know Him. You have a unique love for other Christians because they are Christians and there is a unity that's not merely something we acknowledge with our mind, but it is in a Christian's life even a felt sense so often of a unity that we have with other believers that we want to keep his commandments. So either that's the influence in your life, ultimately, not perfectly for any of us, but that is ultimately what you see working in your life. You see those movements of the Spirit of God like the wind that blows through the trees. You see the movements of being drawn to faith in Christ and to love him and to follow him, of his word abiding in him, in you. Or you don't. You see the movements inwardly of another kind of influence, another kind of spirit, if you will. Acting on your own. That is to diminish the glory of Christ. To hide and give in to sin rather than to repent and pursue righteousness. To ignore and put off the word of God because it's an intrusion into your life rather than loving it and hungering for it. So you have to know what kind of influence is in your life. There's only two. Those who walk in righteousness, the children of God... And those who do not, the children of the devil. Those are John's words. But notice here, and let's just notice this. Verse 25. Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. You've said it yourself. And Judas, interestingly here, uses the term Rabbi instead of Lord like the others. There may be an indication there that of a distance even there that Judas had from Christ and the others there. They're acknowledging him as Lord. Judas, it's almost like he can't even bring himself to say that. Rabbi, teacher. That's what he's going to call him again, if you'll remember, in the garden when he betrays him with a kiss. Rabbi, teacher. But he's not calling him Lord. He certainly knows that part isn't true. He isn't Lord, at least in his heart. He is, in fact, Lord. Jesus just looks to him and he says, you've said it yourself. You've said it, Judas. You've acknowledged it. And since it's saying like, Judas, you know this is true. You know this is true. And really there's again a picture here as we see throughout and we're going to see all the way to the end of God striving with sinners even to the last. Even to the last. Even in this great act of hardness and wickedness. Even knowing the spiritual influence that was dominant in Judas's heart. Even to the last, Jesus extends mercy. He extends grace. Even to the last, he gives the opportunity to trust in him. To repent. To acknowledge his sin. To Judas. To you. To me. He does. And so we always... Always, always want to run to Christ. And let me just give this one little note, and then we're going to pray. And that's this. And I was in a conversation last week of somebody who was wrestling with assurance of salvation, and then for good reason. The encouragement is this to you. If you're here and you don't know that reality in your own life and in your own heart, and you're like, I want to believe, but I can't. I want to repent, but I can't. I might be like Judas, I don't know. And the encouragement is this. You must strive to enter by the narrow gate. You must seek Christ while he might be, may be found. You must ask him to overrule your rebellious heart. 
You must ask him continually to forgive you of your guilt and the pollution that causes you to reject Christ. And you need to do that until you are assured that he is yours and you are his. And then that's going to be a lifelong pursuit of pursuing righteousness. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you counsel us, how you teach us, you instruct us, you reprove us, you correct us, you train us in righteousness. Help us to receive your word with humble hearts. And I do pray it would perform its work in us according to the will of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John.